Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through 43. Luke chapter 23. Verse 32 through 43, I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called uh, the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ to save yourself and us? But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us a love of your word that transcends laziness and lethargy and neglect and all of our prejudices against things which we find to be true in your word and yet which we have embraced in the world. So help us to submit every thought to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't think there's any sweeter words in the entirety of Scripture. I don't think there's any sweeter word in all of Scripture than to hear, today you shall be with me in paradise. What an extraordinary statement. The last 24 hours for Jesus have been excruciating. He has been submitted to, he has been subjected to, and he has submitted to the will of the Father and to the the searching inquiry of those who would judge him. Multiple places of examination and of trial have been held. He has been taken not 24 hours previously. He has been taken unjustly. Uh, His disciples were there. Judas has betrayed him with that kiss. And uh, in the interim between that hour and this, uh, very soon thereafter, after Christ is put on the cross, Judas will cast himself or hang himself in a field which he has purchased. And he will be dashed uh, out on the rocks beneath uh, the tree limb. He will come to a tragic end, but Jesus was betrayed by this man. And in the interim, he has been subjected to an early morning inquiry, 
for all intents and purposes, a, a, a trial, uh, even though they are illegal under the Jewish system. And then in the early morning hours, at first light, he was brought to Pilate. Well, he was brought to another fuller examination before the entire body. Then he was brought to Pilate, and he was brought uh, to Herod, and then sent back to Pilate. And now at 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. He will hang there until noon. He is in such a broken physical condition that Simon of Cyrene has been pressed into service to carry that portion of the cross that it was necessary that Christ should carry. Typically, a beam would be lashed to an individual across their shoulders and to their arms, and then they would be brought up to the mount and then placed upon a vertical post that would have already been buried in a hole. But it's early Friday morning, and at 9 a.m. he will be crucified. He'll hang there until noon, and until three. There will be three hours. He will, he will, uh, there will be three hours of darkness where the Savior will again be laid, or will still hang. So he'll be hanging there for six hours, three hours of which will, uh, he will be, uh, it will be dark as a judgment of God. <clears throat> he is brought up to that hill. It is called the skull. In Aramaic, it is called the skull. In Greek, it is called uh, cranion. <clears throat> In Latin, it is Calvary. In Matthew's Gospel, we are told it is Golgotha. Or Golgotha. <clears throat> this crucifixion that Jesus would endure is a form of execution that is reserved for the worst of all criminals. It's reserved for non-Roman citizens who could not be put to death in this way. The very sentencing of crucifixion was a humiliation. It was a creation. It was essentially to declare a person uh, a persona non grata, someone unworthy of dignity, someone unworthy of being uh, killed in a way that was merciful or rapid or quick. He would have been scourged immediately after the judgment was given. A wooden beam would be lashed to his shoulders. It would be carried to the place of execution. It was a humbling and humiliating thing uh, to be required to take the instrument of one's own uh, execution to be uh, to carry it to the place of one's execution itself. There are many voices here present in this passage, one of which uh, is the crowds, uh, one of which is the rulers of the day. Another voice is the uh, is the soldiers, but we're going to concentrate upon three others. There is the blaspheming criminal, there is the believing criminal, and there is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The first of which, the first voice that we hear in this passage is the blaspheming criminal. Now, Mark 15 and Matthew 27 tell us that both thieves were cursing Jesus initially. Both of the thieves, one on each side of Jesus, there on the, on the hill, on the apex of the hill where individuals were crucified, uh, both of these thieves had joined in initially cursing Jesus. They were ridiculing him. They had joined their voices with the crowds. Their voices blended in with the, the crowds and the rulers and the soldiers. And at some point, this 
other thief on the other side of Jesus changes his tune. And somehow, some way, light breaks into his heart. But this man, this blaspheming criminal, continued. His voice blends with the voices and uh, of the rulers who say, uh, <clears throat> uh, "Pardon me," who say he saved others. Let other, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Well, this this the soldiers themselves say, "If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself." And one of the criminals says in verse thirty nine, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us." I would put to you this morning, there's something satanic about the words from both the crowds uh, and the soldiers, the rulers, and uh, this unbelieving, blaspheming criminal. The word blasphemy is used here in this passage. He's not just simply reciting something. He is not earnestly and sincerely asking to be saved. Rather, what he is saying is blasphemously offered. He has no belief in any way that Jesus is the Christ. He does not believe that Jesus can save himself or him. He does not believe any of these things, but rather he is blasphemously saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us then. He is saying something that he does not believe to be true, and he is saying something in a derisive, ridiculing way that makes fun of Jesus, that makes fun of his condition, and blasphemes the Son of God. There is something satanic about the words spoken by this man, not only because of sincere and wicked unbelief, but more so because it sounds like what he says is very much like what's found in Luke chapter 4 when Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here. Verse 39. Are you not the Christ? The soldiers. If you are the king of the Jews. You see, so much of what they're saying is simply satanic oppression. Satanic opposition. Satan himself is present there on Golgotha. Satan is there ridiculing and blaspheming the eternal Son of God, who saw Jesus before he sinned in all of his resplendent glory. He saw the Son of God. He stood before the Son of God, ministering, fulfilling his purpose for which he was created. And yet he denied that purpose. And he is the one goading these wicked individuals who are servants of Satan to question whether or not he is the Son of God. Jesus knows that it is Satan behind their taunts. I find it ironic that the rulers say, if you are the Messiah, you have said you are the Messiah. You have said that you are the chosen one. They use those Greek words, the Christos, the eklektos. They know by way of their own confession that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he has displayed carefully all that is necessary to be fulfilled to the jot and tittle. Jesus has fulfilled every Old Testament text that speaks of him. 
And though this man, this blaspheming criminal, is dying, he blasphemes with the ones who, frankly, have arranged for his own destruction and death. There's an assumption behind his words that if this man were Christ, and of course he is, then in some way he is obligated to save him. He is obligated to save him, this blaspheming criminal in which, is, in which there is not an ounce of faith, nor is there any repentance over his deeds. That is exactly like the spirit of expectation in our own world where men and women who believe that in some way they are better than what they have received, they, they, they have an expectation before God, if God is God, then they deserve to be shown mercy. That in some way, if God is love, they are the right objects of God's love. That somehow if Jesus Christ did come to die, even though they don't believe in him, they have a right to be forgiven. They have the spirit of the blaspheming criminal. They have the spirit of satanic expectation. And yet Christ came for all who believe in him. This man believed that he was, that God is obligated to save him, that God is obligated to show mercy, that mercy is merit and evil is meritorious. This man has a right to be forgiven simply because he is a creation of God. But he has rejected God all the days of his life. He has led a life of crime and of criminality. He has embraced his sin. He's not in any way interested in God. But there is an assumption behind his words that if God is God, this man has a right to his mercy. The only thing that makes us, that gives us any right to the mercy of God is to have the name of Jesus Christ stamped upon us. To be covered with the blood of Christ Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. You cannot plead your, your privileges. You cannot plead your good name. You cannot plead your good looks. You cannot say in some way that simply because you're created in the image of God, you have a right to his mercy. You are created in the image of God, and therefore God requires of you that in fact you would bring glory to him. And if you do not, he has a right to destroy what does not glorify him. Well, we see further the guilty but believing criminal. Secondly, there is another criminal, and he has a different perspective. And he says this in verse 40 and following. Eventually, at some point, though he has Matthew and Mark record for us, that both thieves on each side were initially critical of Jesus. They were both reviling and blaspheming against the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Mark chapter 15 and uh, Matthew chapter 27. Both individuals were, in fact, ridiculing Jesus and blaspheming Jesus. But at some point, something clicks. And this one becomes convicted and convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is what he says. Do you not even fear God? He says this to his fellow criminal across the way. He points his head forward past the suffering Savior in between them. And he says, don't you believe do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he offers the briefest of prayers as he looks Jesus full in the face. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's all he says. This is a very unusual criminal and circumstance. Not only does he admit that he's guilty, but he shows that he understands that God owes him nothing. And I think that's the position that the believing Christian always comes to at some point. God, great God of the universe who has made all things, you owe me nothing. But I'm here to plead with you for grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Grace is not according to merit. Can it ever be disputed that that this man has been justified by grace through faith? Uh, do Do we need any other scriptural proof that a person is saved by grace through faith and not because of meritorious works or self righteousness? Or that we must wait until the last day to be justified someday under the the uncertainty of whether or not God will justify us in the last day, hoping that we will stir up enough good works that in the end, it will be enough. This man, and, and, and we need to mark this very, very carefully. My Roman Catholic friends need to mark this. My former Roman Catholic friends need to mark this very, very carefully. The thief on the cross is not an extraordinary case in the sense that somehow he was saved differently than any other Christian and professing believer. What did he do? He confessed Christ as to who he is and what he is and what he has done for sinners' sake. He has confessed his own sin. That's all he has done. Faith and repentance. That's it. And Jesus very clearly saves him. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This man has not achieved anything by way of good works. He he didn't earn what Jesus will say to him and do for him. It's because of what Jesus is transacting at that very moment as he hung on the cross. Justification, redemption, propitiation, expiation. All these wonderful things that Christ by virtue of his staying on that cross and being unwilling, as he told Her- uh, or, 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 or Pilate, I could have asked my father and he could have sent legions of angels. And yet it served the purposes of God the Father. And the Son submitting to the will of the Father to save sinners. To offer up, to be justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, because his virtue, his excellence, his perfection, his moral character, his righteousness, he's not just a good human being. He is eminently, perfectly holy and without stain. He is the lamb without blemish that was, stain, that was slain for us. And he has accomplished a justification, our justification, so that our sins being, being put upon him on the cross, he making payment for them, turning aside, propitiating the wrath of God the Father, providing for our redemption, paying the, the redemption price so that we would be sprung from the wrath of God and freed from that wrath and the penalty of sin. This is why Jesus 
is hanging on the cross. I read recently a quote from Ben Carson, former presidential contender or contender for the presidency of the United States. And in an interview with someone, I, don't, I forget who it was, they're asking, and of course the liberal, the, the press always loves to ask questions of Christians that will in some way catch someone in a gotcha sort of moment. And Ben Carson, when asked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, says, and I'm paraphrasing, I would not have let Pilate commit me to crucifixion if I were Jesus. He says, I would have said, look at Peter, look at look at the rest of the apostles, choose them and not me when it came time to put a spear into my side. I'll tell you, dear friend, if 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 you. If your view of the crucifixion is somehow that it was a penalty that could have been avoided, that it was a a physical suffering that could have and should have been avoided. If anyone had if Jesus had his wits about him. You really don't understand what the crucifixion is. You don't understand what Jesus, in his passive and active obedience, is fulfilling and transacting on the cross for your benefit and mine. Jesus is addressing perfectly our human guilt as a consequence of sin, and he is providing for not only our sins to be laid upon him, but also his righteousness to be counted to us. He is without sin. He is not guilty, as is affirmed by this by this man. And Jesus is not guilty. So how do we know that this man was saved? He feared God, and he 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 condemns his fellow. Criminal, when he says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He knows that God will judge them according to their works. He knows that apart from Christ, God will judge them according to their works. And every human being who does not receive Jesus Christ and who does not have the merit of Christ covering us over, who does not stand in the last day in the robes of Christ, will stand before God and give an account for all the works that they have done. They will stand on the basis of the covenant of works and they will be condemned according to what they have done and what they have not done. The good that they have not done and the evil that they have done. Evil motivations, evil purposes, wicked hearts that are determined in every way toward evil. And surely the wickedness of the heart no man can judge fully he feared God he didn't embrace and I think this is a vital point he did not embrace the idea of being a victim he did not do you see what he says here we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds we indeed are suffering justly He refuses to in any way make Jesus out to be a victim, which is what Ben Carson is ultimately doing. Jesus was no victim. Jesus was purposefully making payment for sin. Jesus was perfectly fulfilling all that God intended in the provision of a lamb which must be slain without spot, without blemish, in order for the turning aside of the wrath of God 
He didn't embrace a victimization of himself that somehow the other one, uh, the other criminal said, uh, if you are the Christ, you need to save us. In other words, I'm a victim and you are obligated as God to save me. No, rather, he says, I am suffering justly and God is right in his condemnation. He feared God. He owned up to his guilt before God, confessing his righteousness and judgment. And it's a mark of grace when a person can say, I am a sinner. I justly deserve God's wrath and curse. God is right. God would be right if, in fact, he annihilated me and sent me forever into everlasting judgment. God would be right in justly condemning me according to my sins. And not just the sins which I've committed, but the sin which Adam committed, sin nature which accrues to me in which I was born. It's a mark of grace when a believer says, I am a sinner, and God is righteous in all his judgments. And I don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve grace. Thirdly, this man, how do we know that he's a believer? Because he confesses the righteousness of the Savior. He says of Jesus, he is without sin. He is not guilty. And he says fundamentally that you that he is God. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he's looking at Jesus, who is there between the two of them, and his hands are bleeding, and he is filled and covered with blood. He has been beaten mercilessly, spat upon, and now he has a crown of thorns in, out of which he is bleeding. He is sweating profusely and agonizingly, blood mixed with sweat. And he is pushing himself with his feet up on the cross to breathe. He is slowly but surely gagging, dying of asphyxiation. How can he believe that this marred, broken figure on the cross is going to in any way do anything for him? But he does. He says to that marred figure that is breathing barely on the cross, who is broken and who has stripes all over his body and blood everywhere, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has come to an understanding that no matter how marred this man's figure is, he is the eternal son of God. And he believes that though he dies, yet he will live. He believes that he will be raised triumphantly from the grave, that he will ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and he is that one who stood before the Ancient of Days and received that blessed statement of God's pleasure in him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is a statement of faith that this one who is in the middle between them is the Son of God. This horrible figure, bloodied, broken, hanging, gasping, bleeding, is the King and the Savior of the whole world. We see thirdly the innocent Savior. And he says initially one thing. As he looks on the crowd and he hears all the things that the rulers and the soldiers say, 
And he knows and he feels and he sees the presence of Satan, his arch enemy. He says, Father, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, Jesus is not in any way saying, Father, forgive the sin that is not repented of. He's not saying, Father, even though they are committing grievous sin here, let it go and forget it. He's not saying that. Rather, the very thing that he is doing as he is walking toward the cross and then is lifted up for their sake, the very thing that he is doing is effecting the is bringing to full effect the forgiveness of sins. And so what he is doing is he is making provision for the forgiveness of sins. And he is saying amongst the crowds, as he sees that their blasphemy and the Father's love for the Son leaves them in such a perilous condition that they will in fact be destroyed by the wrath of God. He is saying that of all those who have been given to him who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Father, they they do not understand what they're doing, that they are being animated by by Satan, that they are being led by Satan, that what they are doing is in blasphemy against the eternal Son of God. Father, forgive them by virtue of what I am doing for them. Of all those who will come to faith in me. What Jesus did, everything that Jesus did, we have heard the story so many times. We have seen pictures of Jesus on the cross. And of course, he didn't look anything like any one of those pictures, regardless of what kind of pictures you have. And to be honest, I don't really care what he looked like. I only know who he is. He is our Savior. He is historical. He is true. He is a real human. He was humiliated. Everything that he did was planned for and was scripture fulfilling. The suffering that he endured was torturous. It was curse redeeming. It was law freeing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. It is also joy producing. Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Joy in the Father's love, joy in all heaven rejoicing, joy in the salvation of sinners, joy in redemption, joy in grace, joy in mercy. It's sometimes striking. It's There's something exceedingly striking in hearing what Jesus says to this man lastly. Truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. It's striking to see Jesus in these last two words 
saying, Father, forgive these crowds. You can see their hatred in their face, the spit as they're crying out. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then to this man on his right, as he's bloodied and broken, today, I truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. It's a staggering statement from Jesus. You and I are not capable of this kind of love and mercy. We would look at this man and say, I heard what you said. I know what you've been thinking. Now take it all back and make restitution for all the unkindness and all the meanness and for my hurt feelings. Jesus didn't do that. He just simply looks at this man and says, Truly, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And I, I, I don't think there's any, more, any story that, that more clearly clarifies for us the redeeming heart of Jesus Christ. The, the dissolution of this man's wickedness in complaining against Jesus, this blasphemy. And yet, Jesus, it's dissolved in a moment. And it shows us fundamentally the, dis- the sin-distilling power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That the blood of Christ, once applied to an individual's soul, washes away all sin instantly. So that we experience nothing of the wrath of God, but only an Fully the love of God. And this man, in an instant, Jesus looks over and says, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. How can he say that unless he is forgiven, he is fully justified, he is adopted into the family of God, he is believed, he is is repented, and the Holy Spirit lives within him, and the love of Christ has fallen upon him, and he is instantaneously in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And the love of God the Father is so evident. Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. It should really change our thinking about death and suffering. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That should mean so very much to us. And what what should be said in the hospital one day where you will, lying in your bed, die, what should be said immediately over you, if you believe and you are trusting in Christ, she's with the Lord now. He's with the Lord now. All praise to God. He's with the Lord now. God's... God's people do not go to some intermediate state where state where God's people live until Jesus comes in glory. We don't wait in some place of of purgatory. We don't wait in some intermediate muddled spirit state where we await glory and we await the presence of Christ. And we have to finish up our works of righteousness where we're dependent upon others to pray for us and to pray us into glory. No. 
We don't wait. We pass immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior. When we breathe our last breath, you will be with the Lord. Today you will be with me. This is for all who are His. The greatest blessing of paradise is the presence of the Son of God. We're worried about all the circumstances of of, 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 of heaven. Will there be animals there? Will the sun shine there? Will I be happy there? What will I do? I might be bored. When frankly, frankly, the, the greatest blessing for God's people is, well, Jesus will be there. And I'm going to be with Him. And I've never been loved by anyone more than Him. And no one could ever love me like Him. And I will love Him eternally. And His love will be over me in, in a banner of love. And I will be loved in a way that I've never experienced in this life. And I'll never be far away from Him. I will always be with Him. And He loves me. And He'll always be with me. We all, I think, have this vision that Jesus will be way off in the distance. We'll see Him. But he's going to be way, way off in the distance because I'm the least of, of, of all those who have received the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to be way out on the outskirts and barely getting in. And I, I'll see Jesus way far off and I'll be perfectly happy with that. But that's not what Jesus says. Today you will be with me. And that's for every believer. Because John 14, and Jesus says this to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. That's his promise to every believer. The blessing for the believer is one day we will be with the Lord. So let me ask you, <clears throat> do you have faith like this person on the cross who received this word from Jesus? He told his fellow criminal, hey, stop. Shouldn't you fear the Lord? We're being justly condemned here. This is Jesus, the one who is going to come into his kingdom. Do you say such things to other people? Do you care about the souls of others? Do you, do you see your sin as clearly as this man saw his sin? He saw it with such clarity that he said, I'm, I'm, I am justly being condemned for my deeds. Do you embrace Jesus' person, his words? Do you, do you trust in him? Do you humbly pray that he would come in his kingdom soon? These are marks of the grace of God. These are marks of the evidence of grace in your life. of Growing grace in a believing heart. You know, here's the good news. Jesus is still saving sinners in the same way. He is still saving sinners in precisely the same way. And you and I, we, we need to be reminded that he is anew, that it's not my merit. It's not the good things that I do. It's not what I achieve in this life. It's not my faithfulness that will in any way justify me before God, but rather it is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Jesus is still saving in the same way 
that he saved this man on this tree. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus is still saving in the same way. Do you believe? Are you encouraged in your faith? Are you lifted up, strengthened just a bit, undergirded by this reality that Christ can save in an instant? Christ can save at the last? Christ saves on the barest of statements of true faith. Christ saves apart from your merit. He saves on the basis of his merit. Oh, we believe what the hymnist says, the dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as blind as he, washed all my sins away. If you are in Christ this morning, your sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you believe and trust in him, you too may have your sins washed away, such that Christ would say to you this morning, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word. What an extraordinary, glorious, underestimated, striking, shocking word. For Jesus to look at a man who had reviled him the moment before and then to say that he was going to be with him in paradise within moments, within hours. We can only imagine the joy of this man when finally his life was ebbed away, when they came with spears and they broke legs at 3 o'clock in the 3 o'clock hour later on in the afternoon. And they didn't need to break Jesus' legs because he had already yielded up his spirit. But the other two criminals, they smashed their legs so that they would no longer be able to push themselves up for, for air. Asphyxiated within 10 minutes at least, easily. And finally that man departed from this world. The silver cord was snapped and he ascended his soul unto heaven. But then the other one did not. For his soul went to a place of grief, of gnashing of teeth, of darkness, of separation from God. Oh Lord, what made the difference between those two men? Nothing but the mercy of God. And we are objects of the mercy of God here this morning who would say with uplifted hands, Lord God, thank you. Oh Lord, we deserve wrath but we have received mercy. Oh Lord, we give thanks. Let us live lives filled with gratefulness to God. Let us go to Jesus outside the camp and unashamedly to embrace him as our savior in this wicked world. Oh Lord, we pray that that confession of faith in Christ would be a light unto the world. We pray that many would come to faith in Christ today Many throughout our world who would, for the first time, see Christ as this thief on the cross did. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to believe and to trust in Christ, to hold fast to him, 
to, to plead the merit of Christ alone in all of our communication with you, in all of our prayers, and to stop making those fatal errors, well, not fatal, but to stop making those foolish errors, whereby daily we think that we, we are inhibited in our approach to you because we feel our sin and we want an increase of virtue, and yet we need the correction that we can only boldly approach you in the throne of grace because Jesus has pleaded our case. Because Christ is our righteousness. Forgive us when we miscalculate. Forgive us, O God, when we prove faithless. But remind us that Christ has died for us, for sinners like we. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your hymnal to number 340?
church.